This podcast is brought to you by Simon Mainwaring, New York Times bestselling author and CEO of We First, a brand consultancy that works with top entrepreneurs and companies like Tom's, Virgin, and Timberland to bring their personal and company purpose to life in ways that drive business growth. He's also the inspiration behind the new, life-changing courses entitled How to Find Success Through Purpose and How to Accelerate Business Growth Through Purpose. Please listen to podcast number 679, where Simon shares actionable insights from top entrepreneurs and business leaders about how to define your personal and company purpose to unlock the success you deserve in life. Personal purpose is so important to your health and career. While company purpose is a key driver of business growth today as it empowers your brand to become a movement. If you're looking to create more clarity, success, and fulfillment in your life, and to accelerate your company's growth, then you're going to want to listen to podcast number 679 with Simon Mainwaring about defining and activating your purpose. Check out Simon's courses at www.wefirstworks.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I'm on with Guy Findlay. And Guy is the author of a new book called Relationship Magic, Waking Up Together. Wow, how wonderful would that be, Guy? Good day to you, Guy. How are you doing? I'm great, Greg. Nice to speak with you. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Um, Guy is a returning guest. He's probably been on three or four other times. We'll put links to his other books. He's probably the best known for a book called The Secret of Letting Go. He's an internationally renowned spiritual teacher. I have actually been up to the Life of Learning Foundation in Merlin, Oregon, where it's. I can just tell people, you should all go try and experience that. And if you can't, you can find him online. Um, you can go to Life of Learning uh, Foundation, and you'll find him there. But um, he sold over 2 million copies in 26 languages of The Secret of Letting Go. He's considered a modern-day mystic and philosopher. He's the founder and director, as I said, the Life Learning Foundation and Nonprofit Center for Self-Study, located in Maryland, Oregon, where he holds in-person workshops and hosts the Foundation Wisdom School, an online self-discovery program for seekers of higher self-knowledge. And in 2011, Guy founded the One Journey Project, an interfaith um, intuitive dedicated to illuminating the unseen spiritual unity underlying all world religions. He has appeared in over 700 radio and TV shows, including network programs on ABC, NBC, CNN, CBS, and NPR. Again, you can find him online. We're going to put all the links to his websites. This is a Llewellyn book. There'll be a link to this book as well. Well, Guy, it's always a pleasure having you on, particularly because of all the authors. You know, I don't always get to meet all the authors, but I not only got to meet you, but I spent many days up at your foundation center, the Life of Learning, and truly enjoyed it. And I would highly advocate that for folks. And this book, you know, you and I were speaking just a little bit before coming on the air here and talking about all this decisiveness that's going on inside the world and how great it would be if we could wake up 
together. And you write in the introduction that the longing we have to love and be loved is not some fixed bond that once made between consenting partners. Forever answers or need for love. For love to flourish, it must be ceaselessly exchanged. When things get stale and unexciting in a relationship, what advice do you have for our listeners to rekindle those relationships? The reason that our relationships grow stale, not innovative anymore, less spontaneous, is because we've expired the first level of what love intends for us to know and explore about each other. You remember, Greg, don't you? I think all of us do. You know, you first meet somebody, your new partner, with all of its promise, his or her promise, and how you you can hang on the phone for three hours at a time, maybe go to sleep with the phone thing next to your ear. Do you remember stuff like that? (laughs) I certainly do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, you couldn't hear the person's voice enough. And there was so much to share that was new. But that everything that was being shared for as long as that lasts has to do with who we've been and maybe with what we hope for. And when at last we've run the gamut of that shared exchange about who and what we've been or what we hope for, then we kind of run out of things to talk about seems like we reach a, a, like you said, a a kind of stale place where we sit at the dinner table or at the breakfast table and there's just not much to say because it seems that the thrill, whatever it was, has worn off. Now, love is supposed to mature. We all know what that means. And maybe a more mature love means we don't talk as much because we can enjoy each other's company, but that would be a a stretch for most of us at that stage in our relationship. The way in which a relationship can remain being refreshed, renewed moment to moment, is that each of the partners, or at least one of them, has to understand that the fact is their relationship is being renewed every moment. Let me give a quick example, may I? Most definitely. All of us know how beautiful it is. For instance, I'm in Southern Oregon and looking at a fall day, bright sunlight, leaves are changing color, ground is covered with them and they race along when the wind picks them up and it's moving. I feel the movement, I feel the beauty, I see this harmony. The revelation of that moment that I'm looking at can't be separated from the part of me that it reveals. I'll say it again. The revelation of that moment of harmony, of movement, of beauty is inseparable from the part of my own mind and heart that it reveals at the same moment. Which means that each revelation of beauty a timeless sky, an oceanscape, the vastness of a mountain range, whatever it may be that we lend our attention to, 
gives us an immediate feeling that without what we're looking at and experiencing outside of us, we wouldn't know within ourselves. Let me know if I'm not being clear, Greg, please. No, no, go ahead. If that's true, which it is, with everything that the moment brings and reveals to us, it's revealing to us things about ourselves that we don't know otherwise. It's the same with our partner. Our partner, when we first met him or her, stirred in us emotion, expectation, urges, all kinds of qualities that prior to that particular person coming into our life remained still, quiet. And then, boom, there it is. And that's what we call falling in love, is that the person we meet, the situation we're in, awakens us to qualities of our own consciousness that without the presence of that person or place, we're not aware of. If that's true, which it is, that means that there is no moment, Greg, when we're with our partner, if we're properly attentive, listening, quiet, watchful, that our partner isn't bringing up in us things that we don't know exist in us until that moment. Now, here's the important part of this and how we keep relationships refreshed, stimulating. We all love it when someone that we are fond of makes us feel, helps us see things in ourselves that we love to see and feel. But if it's true what I said, that each moment is a revelation that brings us into an awareness of something unconscious up till that moment in us, then why wouldn't that be true, Greg, with everything that our partner stirs in us? So that if they're sitting there, no matter what their interior condition is, we would be experiencing aspects of ourself that we were asleep to maybe the moment before. Mm -hmm. So that to end this, my partner, in a manner of speaking, remember the beautiful fairy tale Sleeping Beauty? Right. How the princess Their was reflection. awakened. Huh? Mm-hmm. How the princess and was awakened. I was awake. about to say that, that, that their reflection. Yes. So. Yes. And the princess was awakened by the kiss of love. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that the same thing happens to us. And we love the kiss when it's sweet and embracing. But we reject the kiss of love, the moment of revelation when it reveals to us something that we don't know about ourselves or don't particularly want to know. So if we can be in that kind of relationship, Greg, where we understand that our partner is really a mirror and that whatever we are experiencing is because of a partial reflection of some order, then we, we're, we're, in a, we're in a real, how do I say this, a vibrant, um, uh, exploratory, consistently new environment with our partner because that's where we are within ourselves. And it does require, as you're stating, some reflection on the part of the observer yeah. uh, to be able to do that. And I think that is what people forget 
is to take that time as an observer of themselves and other. And you, in your first chapter, you state that we all have spats with loved ones, or it doesn't matter if it's loved ones, it could be co-workers, right. whatever. Either we get hurt or they get hurt right. um, with the words that are spoken. You state that something is growing in us that guarantees the only change we can look forward to in our relationship with others is what we blame each other for. Now, we all know that that is the reason the ego pops up and says, well, you know, she's right, he's right, I, he's wrong, right? right. So why is that? Why is it that it always reverts back to someone trying to usually be right when they're hurting somebody? It's a, 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 an amazing, exciting discovery process, what we're going to look at together right now. When my partner blames me for something, does my partner blame me because they're happy with me at that moment or because they're in pain over something I may have said or done in that moment? Most likely they're in pain. Yeah. <laughs> when we blame, we blame because we're in pain, period. Now, when we blame, we see our partner as the source, the person responsible for our or the pain. pain. Right. But here's why I said it can be... So such a, a marvelous discovery process. The only reason we ever blame our partner for the pain that we're in, particularly when they've blamed us, is because we have and take with us into each moment a, 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 a series of expectations, demands, so that my partner blames me for not being consoling, for not supporting her opinion for not asking for directions while I'm driving, whatever it may be that sets my partner off. My partner can't get set off unless prior to the moment I've taken that action, my partner is looking at me holding unknowingly in her heart or mind a demand that I be and act and do what she expects me to do and act and be so that if I don't do that, suddenly who she thinks she is is threatened by what I've done. And there's pain. So she blames me. Mm -hmm. But to the point, is her pain because of what I've done? Or is her pain because of an expectation that I failed to live up to? So who's really responsible in that moment for that pain? Me? Because I didn't follow the instructions she sent me that meaning that she listed but that I never saw, I never saw or is there an unseen part of my partner that's holding my feet to the fire because of the pain that she's in over me not fulfilling what she expects me to be and the answer is obvious i can't blame somebody without first having framed them with some ideal that I need them to do or be in order for me to be happy with them. 
it is a revelation when people realize that. I think that is important point that you're making is to get to a point where you can observe yourself and the other and almost remove yourself to see that perspective. And that brings me to this next question. You state that the false belief that our purpose in life is to ensure that I remain uh, contented, pleased with our relationship literally chokes the life and the love out of it. Now, right. That almost sounds like a conundrum for a minute. So why is that so? And what can our listeners do to shift the perspective that they understand what that means, that the I remain contented, pleased with our relationship, that it literally chokes the life and the love out of it? We have a completely, how do I say, we have an incomplete idea an immature idea about the nature of love. If I believe that my happiness depends upon you acting out what I expect of you to be, to do, in order to make me feel content with myself, that is a recipe for resentment. Because number one, you may have been able to do that when we first fell in love, first met, first were involved, because you were as interested as I was in seeing that everything remains copacetic, no conflict. So we're kind of filled with compromise at that stage in our relationship. But as B.B. King says, as the thrill is gone, we're not so quick to be willing to compromise ourselves. In fact, quite the opposite, we're more demanding. So we go from being seemingly perfectly receptive and willing to uh, compromise to wanting more and more confirmation of what we believe the relationship is about. Ideally, that you're here on this planet to make sure nothing upsets me. And that's ludicrous. But that's the unseen mindset. So that as long as we have this belief that our partner is responsible for our happiness, we're going to blame them for our unhappiness. It's that simple. And right, as that, long as we see it that way. Yeah, well, look, this is all in, 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 how do I say this? We are brought together with the person we're drawn to, not just so that our love can grow, but that so we can see our love can't grow unless both of us grow as individuals. Mm-hmm. Right. And what happens yeah. in conflict, painful patterns, is that we have pushed the, put the onus on our partner. You're not changing. You're not growing. You're limited. I need to fix you. And it's where we get into that tit-for-tat argument where each blames the other for the bitterness that we have lost sight of the fact that your limitation may cause an irritation in me, but my negative reaction to what irritates me about you is my limitation. And once we start to see that we're here to help each other not only experience an infinite, timeless love, but that the path 
to that kind of revelation is through a willingness to meet our own limitations as revealed to us by our partner, then we're mm-hmm. stuck. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it is, I keep saying this and I said it before, it is kind of the mirror, you know, a reflection. Oh, yeah. So this brings me to chapter two, the Tao of love. So obviously you've used this analogy of the yin and yang uh, to compare this attraction. And they say in the world, opposites attract. Right. So what is the universe attempting to teach us about ourselves usually when we enter into, and I think this is more than not, it is statistically proven that opposites attract. Uh, what What's being revealed to us when we enter these kind of what you call opposite relationships, because it isn't just relationships with, with spouses. It's relationships with a lot of people that are being thrown our way that are opposing. Right. Yes. And we're here to learn something from that opposition. You, You used a great example of all the divisiveness that's going on. We just saw the Senate confirmations. There probably couldn't have been anything more opposing or divisive than what went on there. Oh, yeah. Look. Somehow, Greg, it's been lost on us that we're here in this world, in this life, in our relationships, to discover ourselves. We've literally lost the idea the ancient axiom, the old ideas, know the truth, the truth will set you free. Perfect love casts out fear. Know thyself. These things, timeless, true, they've been lost because we are so instantaneously reactive now, believing that our unhappiness, our conflict, our pain is because someone else doesn't see life the way we see it. We've lost sight of the fact that we can't see ourselves in these moments. Look, this shouldn't have to be explained, but maybe it does. Love doesn't hate. Love does not separate. Love never argues. And when we understand, even in some basic way, that love is a unifying force, not a divisive one, then we have to see that even though we say, I'm arguing with you, I'm in this fight, I'm only doing this because I care about you, that that level of love is lost and limited at the outset because as long as we believe that who we are and how we feel depends upon the behavior of another person or a political party or any problem, we are going to be used by that situation instead of using it as the mirror it's intended to be to help reveal to us what is limiting us. That's the key. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. And you give in the book three revelations to help us rediscover this power of love. The first one is, and you mentioned it earlier, we don't really know what real love looks like. Right. Can you 
give our listeners some idea of what real love looks like. Everybody should take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because look, I'm going to say something now, which is true. And we have to do more than just look at it and go, yeah, that's right. We have to learn to understand that in the highest, most powerful sense of the words, love is the answer to any moment of conflict. But what does it mean? What does it look like? Here's what it looks like. I'm more interested in giving you what you need in the moment than I am in securing what I believe I have to have in the moment. That's what love looks like. Now let's examine that. Somebody who is arguing with me, somebody has been disrespectful, somebody approaches me with an opinion 100% counter to mine, and I have an immediate negative reaction because something in me immediately resists the manifestation of that person or that platform. To love in that moment doesn't mean to acquiesce. It means to be able to look at the person or that particular moment and do, just as you've said, realize that I am looking not just at someone, something outside of myself, but I need to be aware of and look at the part of me that is experiencing the way that it does. For instance, I know how right I am by how wrong I think you are. That can't make sense to anybody, but it does in that moment. I'm on fire because of how cool you are treating me. To understand these moments inside of ourselves as being levels of a consciousness revealed through that moment, allows us to realize, you know what, I have to give as much attention to myself in this moment as I do to what that part of me is trying to make you see and do in the moment. Then, Greg, love has a chance, because the observer and the observed are momentarily unified. It isn't you against me, it's not me against you. It's another order of my own consciousness capable of seeing that how can I think to myself that I really care about this condition when my own consciousness is on fire? I'm, I'm full of anger. Anger doesn't know about love. I'm full of bitterness. Bitterness knows nothing about compassion. I'm so interested in ensuring things go my way, I can't see that selfishness knows nothing of sharing life. So that we must become self-aware human beings if love, at any level, personally or socially, is ever going to have a chance to flower. It is the conundrum, and that brings me to your second revelation 
which you actually imparted in the book quite interesting with this story. I'm going to let you kind of tell this, frame the story around what you call love on the rocks. Sure. So it it's created during a counseling session with a couple that were about to be married, but then they fall back on some rough times communicating with one another and use a great analogy to impart wisdom and advice uh, to this couple. And I loved reading this chapter actually, because the advice you gave was so true. And you call this the love on the rocks. Um, tell us a little on this, a little bit about the story and then the ultimate advice you gave this couple after they'd, spend some time counseling with you. The story points out something that all of us go through. And as simply as it can be said, and as brief as possible, we disagree. And when we disagree, there is a, a storm. Now, for the most part, these storms that we experience with our partners involves suffering born of blame, like we've been discussing. But part of what I reveal in this story, this uh, recapitulation of a counseling that I did with a couple, is that these moments where we disagree are not meant to drive us apart. They're actually meant to help strengthen us. And if I recall properly, I, I talked about how a great wind comes along and the wind isn't there to destroy the tree. Talk the about is... the tree swaying in the breeze. That was yeah. the message. Yeah. Yeah. That 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 it, that that it's able. To, it, the tree is strengthened by what challenges it. The tree is cleaned. You know, most people don't know this. I hope I can get it out succinctly. You know, the, these great storms come along. For instance, I, I'm not going to go into the hurricane and the tragedy, but even at levels like that. Storms clear out what is old. Up here in southern Oregon, in the woods, the wind, the rain comes, and all the old branches that no longer serve the tree, the leaves that are no longer needed, they're all taken from the tree. It's like a cleaning service. Mm -hmm. And I, I would maintain strongly that that principle holds true across the board, as above, so below. That these moments of conflict, of storms between us and our partner, are intended to help us first see what no longer serves us my idea that you're in this life to make sure that nothing makes me unhappy is an old idea it started properly when i first fell in love because that's all you did was make me happy but now it's old it doesn't work so we begin to see that in these moments these circumstances are appearing the way that they are and for the purpose they do so that each of us can gradually let go of what no longer serves the love that brought us together. And that is that is one of the main keys to this, whether it's a relationship or communication, finding out what's not serving us. You have a third revelation, which is to awaken the power to start solving all your relationship problems. You state in the book that any form of one-sided love is destined to collapse under the weight of its own unstable foundation. Um, what advice do you have to firm up the foundations of relationships? And this goes for 
people out there in corporate America are listening to this as well. For all of those, I always use this example guy because people remember it. And that was Southwest Airlines. You know, it just had a big heart on it. And Carb Kelleher used to run around and just hug people and love them. And there is room for this. There's huge room for this advice inside businesses as well, because those that are going to survive are going to love, have compassion, collaborate, evolve, learn uh, from the things you're teaching. And I think that goes along with this question is one-sided love. Yeah, this is one of my favorite ideas. Look, when, uh, when we're in a conflict with my supervisor, an employee, my partner, my mom, my dad, whoever it may be. We can't be in conflict unless, in this instance, something they have done has put me into some kind of resistance, pain. That's what the conflict is. I'm in pain, and I want to point it out to you, control you, or fix you, or change you. That's one-sided, and here's why. When I'm in pain, the last thing that I can see is that my partner's in pain. When I'm arguing with somebody, all I know is the pressure of trying to prove myself right. I can't feel the same pressure, stress, that's going on in my partner or my employer or my employee. I can't see it. I'm blind. Negativity is blinding. To understand that all relationships are two-sided means that we begin to realize that our pain is not more important than our partner's. My stress is not more important than the person I'm speaking with at work. Because if we're in conflict, we're both in pain and we're both stressed. And the solution to that is to begin to have a two-sided relationship, meaning that I'm aware of your pain. This is so profound in its implication, at least. We actually believe, without knowing it, that our suffering, our stress, is more important than the stress or suffering of our partner. And it's simply not. Because there can't be a fight without both of us seeing the other, without seeing ourselves. Once we get that idea of a unity of recognizing that the situation exists as it does because both of us are pointing a finger that pain has brought into the moment instead of seeing that it isn't her pain, it isn't my pain, it's our pain. Then we can grow because then we can look at the situation through a new set of eyes, a new revelation that begins to mitigate instantly the old pattern by producing a new scenario in which at least, to some extent, we're observing ourselves as part of the problem, not the solution to it. Mm -hmm. That's the opportunity for people to uh, be the observer. Yep. Um, you know, They are the participant, they are the observer as well. And you give some great advice on ending these painful patterns. Let's just call them patterns. The first is at the end of a disagreement, someone saying, well, let's agree to disagree. <laughs> Uh, the second one is putting on this unflustered face. It really does not matter attitude. And the third one is finding guilt or shame to reshape our partner 
is doomed at the onset. Could you comment about these three painful patterns, starting with the one, let's agree to disagree. That one comes up a lot in businesses. It probably even comes up as much in relationships because we know that that doesn't work. That's right. It's the avoidance of self-discovery. It's the avoidance of using the moment that would reveal to us the part of us that's limited. So that when we compromise at that level, what we're really doing is saying, look, uh, I can't win and you're not gonna. So let's just agree to bury this for now. And as we all know, that a rock beneath the surface of the earth weighs the same as one above, to quote an old philosopher, that all we've done is sow the seed of the next fight. In fact, the seed has grown because the resentment born of not resolving the real issue, which is that neither one of us understand the pain that's setting us against one another, it just grows. And the next fight will be bigger, more bitter, and if we do the same thing again, the pattern will eventually produce a schism, a breakup. And I want to add this to that one point. When we are in those kind of situations, we believe somehow or other that love has abandoned us. Love is lost. It's gone. And I want everyone to understand, love never abandons us. We abandon what love is trying to teach us to release us from what is blinding us in that moment. That's an important point. It's yes. very important. It's, if if people can grab on to that one, they can grab onto the essence of this book. So this unflustered place, it really doesn't matter attitude. Uh, okay. You just kind of like, eh, so what? It is what right. it is. Um, how would you recommend ending this and addressing what is really on our mind and in our heart when we act out like we don't care we need to see that that's the proof that we care too much why would I act like I don't care what you said unless it cut me to the quick and I don't know what to do with that pain I don't know what to do with that sense of being betrayed because I don't know what to do with the revelation of that pain, of that sense of being betrayed. You see, look, can I feel deeply betrayed without having a deep expectation that you never do anything against me? Can I? No. So the real betrayal is in with myself. Look, my partner, let's get this clear, listeners. We are all in training on this planet. The expectations we have of others, we hold their feet to the fire to avoid seeing our own weaknesses. It's that simple. It's not sweet to hear, but it's true. Oh, Buddha had a great statement, Guy. Please. Expectation is suffering in the making. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, that. So if you remember, all you're going to do is remember, if you have expectations about how anybody is going to act, react, love you, not love you, and if you have this big expectation, you're already setting yourself up for failure. 
That's it. But here's the, the, the unspoken part of that, is that if I can realize that, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to have the reaction. It's hardwired in, right. my, in my nature, in my unconscious nature. It's hardwired. But instead of letting that negative reaction drive a cycle of resistance in which there's a ceaseless conflict, we can use that negative reaction to free ourselves from that part of us that has kept itself hidden through blaming our partner. Mm -hmm. So acting like it doesn't matter doesn't change anything. In fact, it rather cements the image that we have of ourselves as being above the conflict that's actually controlling our behavior in that moment. So true. Now, this painful pattern number three. Um, I, I was interested. I was listening to an NPR show about shame versus guilt. And, you know, there's a lot of this going on. They were talking about this as it relates to uh, women, like the testimony that was made at uh, Kavanaugh's trial. There's a lot of shame by women who've gone through sexual improprieties like that right. versus the guilt. Yeah. Now, there is a big definition between this guilt and shame. To reshape, and you say to reshape our partners is doomed at the onset. So it would never come to an end until we see who is weaving this pattern, you state. How would you help people overcome this shame and guilt pattern that they create. They want to create that on someone else. Yes. They push it out there. Yes, right? but it's not it's not really Greg. No one wants to hurt another human being. Well I know but they do but frequently they do. it seems like it's intentional. It seems it. Yes. It? And I want to make that clear. No conscious human being would intentionally hurt another under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. Love doesn't hurt others. But we are not conscious yet. We're working, trying to become aspiring towards another level of being, not only as individuals and with partnerships, but in life itself. The world is intended to continually transform. Right now it's stuck. So here's what we're talking about. When we shame someone, what are we doing? We're calling up their past. You did this, you didn't do that. More likely, you should have been like this or you could have been like that. You ought not ever have. And when we put someone in a frame of shaming them, we're doing it to get them to confess that they're wrong, to try and change their behavior. But please, listeners, listen to how, how, how incredibly impossible that path is the more we try to make someone become sorry regretful remorseful answer to what we believe they're meant to do or be the more we re we restrain the possibility of them ever seeing what it is we're asking them to see if we put a rose in a small pot and leave it there for months. What happens to the rose pot? What happens to that rose? 
Well, if you don't take care of it, it's going to wither away. Well, not only that, but it'll become root-bound. Right. And it will wither because it has no way to grow. It'll never reach its potential. Mm -hmm. That's what we do to ourselves and others when we try to blame or shame them. We're actually putting them in a situation where for our demand that right. they be they different. Grow. Yeah. So we create in them instantaneous resistance to what we're yeah, but asking. That's our them. Way, but that's our way to control them or attempt to control them. Attempt to control. Right. And love doesn't try to control. <laughs> no. Love doesn't control anything or shouldn't exactly. be. It, it just lets be, everything flower. Right. A free expression. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, Guy, you provide some great wisdom and advice in waking up together uh, in this book. And for my listeners, if you're looking to love unconditionally, heal your own heart, and help heal the heart of others, you're going to want to listen to more of the talks with Guy. And you can get those at Life of Learning Foundation. We'll put a link to that. You also uh, can learn about Guy, and we'll put up the Instagram uh, link, the YouTube link, or at guyfinley.org. This book will be linked at Amazon um, on the blog entry called Relationship Magic, Waking Up Together. And again, uh, the world is so much in need of the principles that are being taught in this um, that we're going to be doing a um, uh, a mail-out for Guy tomorrow, actually. So uh, please look for that. And Guy, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth, spending some of your time to explore the wisdom of unconditionally loving one another and relationship magic. Any parting words you have for our audience? I think the only thing I would add to what has been a, a, a fine and productive conversation, Greg, is the, the idea that we, we must understand that that old saw, with love all things are possible, that it's true. And that the part of us that can remember and that still longs to realize what is essentially our right as a human being to know a limitless relationship with others, with life, no restrictions based on past demands, that that is intended to be ours if we will do the commensurate work required to create a relationship and realize it with love. Well, this is all about taking a deeper dive in loving ourselves and loving others and doing it together. Guy, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate you imparting your wisdom on relationship magic, waking up together. Thanks, Greg. I couldn't have enjoyed it more. 